This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, before we start, just a heads up, a little bit of audio issues, so this might not sound as clean as some other podcasts, but uh, we will work to get that uh, cleaned up. Uh, my, uh, my apologies on that. This episode, once again, is uh, geared towards the year's best sports writing 2023, which was an anthology that I guest edited. Now out on Amazon, Goodreads, wherever you get your books, broken brick and mortar stores, uh, etc. But the the book is now out again, the 2023, the year's best sports writing. And we have two writers whose work was reprinted in that book. And they'll come on and they'll talk about their stories. First up is Ryan Hockensmith of ESPN. His piece, The Secret MVP of Sports. The porta potty, which was just a fascinating story about porta potty, something you probably do not think about, but are vital when it comes to attending a sporting event. And Ryan goes into how he was able to report that fascinating story. He's followed by Sarah Heppola of Texas Monthly. Her piece, A High Century of High Kicks and Hot Pants, it is the definitive look at the history of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and everything that went into. Um, that group, um, they were absolutely exploited in terms of not being paid, um, even still to this day, you're sort of nearly what their, um, what their value has been to that club. And she was the first person to really do a sort of a comprehensive historical look at, uh, at the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, just an absolutely fascinating piece by Sarah. So, uh, two writers from the year's best sports writing 2023 coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, excited to have this gentleman as a guest. Ryan Hawkinsmith is a writer for ESPN. You've probably seen a lot of his work on ESPN.com over the years. He's here for the purposes of this podcast because one of his stories has been honored in the 2023 year's best sports writing anthology. The headline of the story is The Secret MVP of Sports, the Porta Potty, it's published uh, on ESPN.com on January fifth, twenty twenty-two, and uh, to me, there is a great genius and someone who uh, examines what uh, we take for granted in any sporting event we attend. Ryan Hawksmith, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me, Richard. I'm so excited to be here. 
Well, so I, as I said in my intro essay, it's probably the best uh, piece on shit I've ever read. Wanted to, you know, use that uh, description as best I could. So if you could, it's really, you, you wrote a fascinating piece. N- none of us who've been to concerts or sporting events ever probably think about, well, how do the porta potties get here? How do you clean them? What, you know, what is this business? And as I learned from your piece, it's a $17 billion business. Um, so take us through your story in, in, in your own words. Well, I'll tell you, everybody asks how I ended up like wanting to write this. And I'll tell you just quickly that I had to take my daughter to this rural field hockey field one time, like two or three years ago. And there was nothing around other than this grass field. And there was this porta potty up on the hill and I was there for two hours and I went up, had to use it. And I walked inside of it and it was a disaster, an absolute dumpster fire in there. And I just immediately thought, who has to deal with that? And what would we do without it? As bad as this porta potty is, what would we do without this shining hope on this hill here, you know, for all the parents and players? And so immediately I was like, wow, when you think about sporting events, we can't have sports without porta potties. You cannot have tailgating. You cannot have um, any kind of large event. You can't have a parade. You can't have a Taylor Swift concert. And you certainly can't have NFL games. And so I started reaching out and I thought I wanted to find the best fan base possible. And, you know, I think the bills are up there amongst the, the rowdier fan bases because I knew I was going to have to walk up to people coming out of porta potties and be like, hey, how'd things go in there? You know, so I thought, right. who's not going to punch me? You know, and so I thought the bills would be good. So I reached out to the official porta potty provider. Uh, for the bills, modern, um, and I, I asked if I could ride along, and <laughs> and they said I couldn't believe they said yes. So I went there for a late season game against the Colts, and I just they put me with this guy. He was he had been on the job for about six months, and I could tell he was like, <laughs> you know, he was sort of like a LeBron level prospect in the porta potty business. Like they were really really thought highly of Ben Cansdale. They thought he was really on <laughs> like a hot prospect. And so they put me with him and I spent the whole day with him and I saw things I will, I will never unsee. Um, but the, I guess the important thing, I followed him through the course of the day, but as I got started reporting on this story, I started realizing the significance of bathrooms just in society, you know, the way we talk about gender, the way that cities come together, the way that large events have happened. I mean, large events in the United States, they're only really like 75 years old. There was no like, uh, j- there was no Taylor Swift concert in 1915, right? So this idea of the portable bathroom, I mean, it really starts to be a commentary on society more than just like, how do these things get cleaned? And so that's what the story ends up being. I spend it with Ben for the day and it is a wild ride just with Ben. But then I spent a lot of time later in the story Talking to, I, t- I found a bunch of people who are actually bathroom experts, written books about it um, and where we're headed with bathroom technology and things like that. And so I probably talked to five to 10 experts on bathrooms. And so I think the story is a pretty fun mix of like that day in Buffalo mixed with the significance of bathrooms. So when you are, I mean, to me, this is a great story. And I think any editor would recognize that. Was there any challenge in pitching this to your editors no i'll tell you the the challenge we ran into from my reporting in a second but no i i've been at espn since 2001 i love it i mean i i just there's such an openness to um long-form stuff 
and investigative stuff. And I have great editors and they were like, they were very trusting of me. And so they said, go do it. And they, they've said that they say that all the time to me. I write stories that sometimes that publishes and I'm just like, I can't believe they, (laughs) I can't believe they let me do this. This is awesome. So I knew, but what happened is the the challenge was I got this incredible reporting, but it all involved very gross stuff. So the challenge I ran into, the only pushback that I got, which was good pushback, was when I filed a first draft that just had multiple things that this should not appear on a Disney platform about human beings using the bathroom and the things that I saw that day. And so they, the only pushback was very good editor pushback of like, hey, we cannot write about this thing that happened uh, involving bodily fluids and whatnot. So otherwise, no, they were like, go do it. And so I just went and did it. You mentioned you had to, you did have a big challenge. What was that challenge? It was the grossness. There's, there's like five things that I wouldn't tell you on this podcast that are very interesting and would have you howling, but you just wouldn't want to put out there into the world because it was so disgusting, you know, because people use, I think you said this earlier when we were talking, maybe before we started recording, but porta potties are a, I'm going to get in and I'm going to get out thing. Right. And so people treat them that way. They're, they do not treat it, you, this bathroom at the Bills game the same way they would at your house. They just are, I'm going to blow this thing up and get out of Dodge. That is, And I saw it over and over again. And I've experienced it too. You want to spend the least amount of time possible in there. So like one of the details that got in there that people were really struck by was the idea that this guy who cleans porta potties at Bills games every weekend has never had to refill the hand soap thing one time, not once. No one washes their hands. Zero people wash their hands. So that was among the like less gross, gross things that, that got in there. The, the, you know, my guess is that there may not be an answer to this because like if there was, someone would have done it already. But in the way that we have seen um, other industries sort of um, up their game in terms of service or luxury, right? Like, uh, you know, once upon a time, like air travel was one way. And now today, if you are willing to pay whatever first class, you know, business, business, business class, it's essentially like, you know, staying in a hotel. Is there anything that can be done in porta potties to make the experience like a little less train spotting in the toilet scene? Well, I talked to a lot of experts about that very topic. So there is kind of an answer, but the the answer is probably not at a big football game like that, where there's just thousands and thousands of drunk people. However, there are some very, very nice porta potties that you will see out in the world these days. There's there's porta potties. I've actually been in some of them that have like marble countertops, you know, and bathrooms. If if I put you in the middle of it and you didn't know that you walked up steps into this little shed, basically with toilets in it, if I just dropped you into some of these, you'd be like, oh, this is a really nice bathroom. And then you walk outside and be like, oh, this is just a glorified porta potty. So that. I I saw one of those at a polo match, which is different than a Bills home game. So right. until and I think at some of these larger concerts th- and things like that, uh, where you just have so many people that are intoxicated and behaving badly, they, it's just not worth putting in the the. They would just get ruined. So there there is a, if you had a nice party at your house, a wedding or whatever, you could get a really nice kind of porta potty but you're just i don't think you're going to see it at a college football or an nfl game 
one more thing on this, and I'm going to ask you about uh, uh, another story that made the honorable mention. Um, you know, again, it re- I know this sounds crazy, but it was such a fascinating topic, and you did obviously such intense reporting that there probably is a book somewhere. I don't know if it's like porta potties itself, but I feel like there is a book to be done on um, just how human beings use. Um, like restroom facilities outside. And I'm wondering, did you even contemplate that or am I insane here? No, I think you're, <laughs> I think you're, you know, I was an editor at ESPN for a long time and I actually worked with our, uh, one of my best friends in the business, Dave Fleming. He, we wrote multiple stories about just the intersection of like bot, the human body and sports, both as athletes and as fans. And like one of the stories we did was like, you have this idea of an NFL halftime for players where they're in there with Bill Belichick looking at plays and all this other stuff. And Dave asked a bunch of players about halftime and they were like, no, it's just us lined up to pee. It's 12 minutes long. And then we run back out on the field (laughs) and you're right. I think there is a really fascinating story to write, or maybe a book, maybe it is a book. You know, some of these books that I talk to experts about, I was like, man, I got to get that book. It's really interesting because it tells a lot. You know, one of the experts said to me, you can tell a lot about a society by looking at their bathrooms. And that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. It is true. And so I do think there could conceivably be a book there because the more like sort of the focus point of this story was this idea that you can't have big time events of any kind without thinking about bathrooms. And so that makes the bathroom as like the linchpin for so much of what we do in society from from music concerts to parades to sporting events. And sports are currently maybe the number one most popular thing of any kind entertainment wise in the in our country. So the idea that the bathroom is a fundamental like (laughs) first we're going to schedule a game and then the second thing we're going to do is figure out if we have enough bathrooms like it's an integral part of, of every sporting event. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Then the last thing I want to uh, talk to you about is make sure I have uh, the exact title of this as I head to the um, honorable mention sections. And that is you had two stories uh, in the honorable mention section of this anthology. So you obviously had a pretty remarkable year. And what I wanted to ask you about was um, titled Inside the Life of a Gambling Helpline Worker, uh, which is from ESPN.com, February 9th, 2022. Um, I feel like, um, you know, you really took something that, pr- that probably has not been nearly covered enough. And that's the downside of all this, um, gambling sports, gambling money into the ecosystem. Now I, I'm, I tried never to be a hypocrite on this, uh, the place that my primary employer, the athletic has a relationship with sports gambling. We cover sports gambling in that place. I've worked at places that have had an affiliation to sports gambling. So to like not acknowledge that in some ways, and I would accept sports gambling on this podcast. So to not acknowledge that you're, you're part of the ecosystem, you're just being hypocritical. That said, um, I think you're also 
foolish if you don't examine like when this stuff could go bad. And the thing that sort of stood out from that piece, Ryan, is just, man, like if you wanted to be on the front lines of like gambling, sports gambling addiction, you would talk to a sports gambling hotline worker, correct? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like just full disclosure, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a recovering drug and alcohol. I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. So I have a lot of um, interest in the addiction. I write, I write about addiction quite a bit. And right. um, I think I do it from pretty even handed. I'm not like someone who's like, you have to ban ga- gambling and beer. I'm not, I'm not like that. I just know I can't do it. I can't do gambling either. Um, so I got really interested in it. It's like every you're inundated with ads for, for these, for gambling. And at the very end in very fast, very fast, like if you have a problem, blah, 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 call this. Blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, boy, there's people that actually answer this, that phone line. I wonder what their life is like. And so I found that, you know, the Connecticut problem gambling hotline is right near my house here in Connecticut. And I spent time with the woman. There's basically one woman who answers that phone like 12 hours a day. You know, they have a couple of people that work there and they have after hours like a uh, uh, service that that fills in for them. But, man, I spent time with her and her phone would just ring and it would be someone telling her, I just I can't go back to college because I used my dad's money that he gave me to bet on sports. And it, it the reality of there is another side to this, which is that there's people betting their life away. And she was one of the things that was really startling. I guess if I, I had a lot of takeaways from my spending time with her, one was just how much she personally cared and that the people answer these hotlines, they just care. They want to help you. Um, it's not a high paying prestige job. So she cared so much. But the other thing that really hit me as I was talking to her was you can, you can't, it's, it's easy to bet now. It's easier than ever to bet now. And you can bet so quickly so much money, you know, and she was telling me about some of these callers that would call and they would have bet a whole bunch of money and lost it on NFL games and then gone and bought a bunch of cryptocurrency and then done, you know, some of these casinos, you can play, you can play blackjack and, and slot machine. You can play slot machines on your phone, you know? And so one of the things that came up in my reporting was this uh, debate sometimes um, with legislatures about how many seconds in between how fast you can hit the like roll again on on a slot machine and the difference between like five and eight seconds, like between rolls. And she was telling me that just to make the point that on your phone, you can throw your whole financial life away. Wow. And I just the, the I guess the word is rapidity, like you can do it so rapidly that I just was like, wow, it's not even just easier to bet than ever. It is, you can do it in five minutes. And that really struck me. I think the thing that, um, you know, we've seen some of this already, like in the lower levels of tennis and stuff. I just, I don't know with all this sort of money floating around and ma- and more than that, just the accessibility to gamble. I don't know how ultimately we're not going to have uh, some kind of sports gambling. Um, you know, what's the like, like, like I don't know how it'll play out, like in terms of games fixed or not, but it just seems inconceivable to me that pro sports are not going to be impacted by this with some really, really bad scandal in the in the near to medium term. I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but um, it just again, it just like you said, the the accessibility of all this now, like it's just too great. And when you're talking to someone who's like a sports gambling hotline worker like these are the people who could really tell you just how deep the addiction is for some 
And if you just sort of take the logical step, well, then why wouldn't that addiction hit hit eventually somebody in professional sports? It just, it seems that there's no way that they're not going to be impacted by it. That's just my thought. What about you? No, I, you know, I don't, I, again, I try not to clutch my pearls too much. Like anything that exists, someone's going to abuse it. And that's just, that's going to be the reality. You're right. It's like, it's going to be, there's a certain percentage of this, um, of this world that is susceptible to addiction in any of these things. And like, when you think about, I mean, what's the average age of a professional athlete in the United States? It's probably early twenties, right? So you're talking about 20, 22, 24 year olds who live on their phone and can just bet you could, I mean, you could bet what a hundred times in an hour pretty easily. I mean, it's just, it's, it is bound to happen. You're going to get the, the edifice will be good enough soon enough. Well, you're honestly be able to bet per strike per, <laughs> per, you can already do per play depending on the speed of the sport, but you know what I mean? Like it'll get, it'll get to micro betting where the tech will be so great. You, you really may be able to bet on like something to the effect of like per pitch. If you, if you really are that deep in it. Yeah. That's what makes these people who answer the hotline. I, I, they just, they are beautiful people that I met. They just like cared, you know, and the idea that, uh, you know, one of the wild things I discovered was that these, these helplines, they're mostly, go- they're government agencies for the most part. They're part of the government agency. Um, but a lot of them are funded by casinos. You know, it's written into every gam- gambling law. That like, yeah, you can gamble now, but hey, casino, make sure that sports book, you have to help fund this helpline. And so what an interesting intersection that is, right? Like the people who are are providing the craps tables and the sports odds are also kind of trying to trying to provide funding for these groups that end up helping the people who can't handle it. It's a wild, wild proposition. Ryan Hockett-Smith is the author of The Secret MVP of Sports. The Porta Potty. It is uh, one of the stories that made the 2023 the year's best sports writing anthology, which I guest edited, and obviously had a great group of uh, advisory board people uh, with me on this. Um, Ryan, um, thank you for your work. I was um, quite honored to to put it in the book. I thought this piece was just phenomenal, and I wish you nothing but the best of success heading forward. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me, Richard. I really enjoyed it. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. All right, as I said at the top, I'm very excited to have this woman on the podcast. This continues our series of writers uh, who are in the 2023 year's Best Sport Training Anthology. Sarah Heppola is a host and creator of the Texas Monthly Podcasts. America's girls about the cultural impact and lost history of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. Her memoir blackout, remembering the things I drank to forget became a New York times bestseller in 2015. She's currently working on her second memoir unattached. She is a writer at large for Texas monthly. And that is where her story comes in 
for this podcast purposes, as well as um, the book that I edited in September of 2022, A Half Century of High Kicks and Hot Pants. And this was just an absolutely brilliant and fascinating examinations of the origins of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, who obviously have become uh, known well beyond the NFL. And Sarah has become sort of the de facto historian of uh, <laughs> Americana. But if you read in this piece, it's uh, the story just sort of hits on so much stuff from um, from the times that the Cowboys cheerleaders were formed to sexism, to misogyny, to uh, sort of class and elitism. And she just wrote a brilliant piece. And it was quite an honor to include this in the book. And with that, I bring on Sarah Heppelow. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Mm, thank you so much. So um, what we've been doing is allowing the allowing is the wrong word. It's not a prison colony here. What we've been doing <laughs> is uh, asking the writers to just give a brief um, synopsis of their piece. It's a little hard with you because you've done a podcast series on this and yeah. you've done a lot. But as a general rule, um, the piece that you wrote that that appears in our book, um, how would you describe it? Well, it's um, it looks back at the origin story of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and their cultural impact um, and how they kind of defined uh, generations, um, but then also how they've emerged into a world that is really moving away from what they built um, and, and questioning whether or not they really belong uh, in this era and what's going to happen to them. But, you know, along the way, we meet some of the central figures in the cheerleader story. You know, this story originated for me because I didn't know, like the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders kind of always existed, but it was like, why and how? And so I wanted to give voice to these women um, that had largely been known exclusively for how they looked. And so, you know, we meet some of those people. We walk along um, through some of their struggles, including, you know, their rise to fame is phenomenal in the 70s, but it also came with a darker side of stalkers and um, unwanted attention. Um, they couldn't really control the the roller coaster ride. Um, some of the feminist backlash in the 80s uh, and the lawsuits over fair pay, which erupted in the last 10 years, basically across the NFL. Um, and because cheerleaders have been, you know, like shockingly, shockingly underpaid since the inception. I mean, the, the idea was that it was kind of a side hustle. And so it was a look at how this sort of experiment became um, a global phenomenon. One thing that was um, that is interesting to me is, you know, the Cowboys cheerleaders have been written about before. Um, some have done uh, or at least attempted to try to do the exploration that you did, although I don't think in the same kind of detail you did. There obviously were a lot of pieces that were essentially like almost people magazineized where they would, you know, focus yeah. on feature on, on this. How did um, like did someone from the Cowboys cheerleader um tree if you want to sort of use that like come to you at a certain point to introduce you to this you know you live in dallas you're obviously aware of them but there must have been some kind of catalyst that led you to do the first 
piece that you did on this? What was it? Yeah. I mean, uh, so actually, I think the opposite is true. Like, I don't think they wanted me to do this story at all um, because I think the organization was afraid. Um, you know, they're just incredibly secretive and private and they they like to control their narrative and they didn't like the idea of anybody knocking around in their history. Um, but I came to this story because first of all, I, I grew up in Dallas. And so when I was five years old and seven years old, I mean, like I was obsessed with these women that were these sparkly princesses that were plastered all over, you know, the city. Um, but then you grow up and I moved away. I lived in New York for a while. I moved back and I remember looking up at a billboard and seeing this, you know, blonde glamazon in the uniform that was branded on my brain and being like, oh my God, they're still here. Like, and in this story, you can hear, I'm not like a really close football watching fan, you know, but it was like, I can't tell you how much had changed in the world in that time between the time that I was five years old and I was probably 38 years old looking up at them and they had not. And I became kind of like fascinated, like, well, who is this woman? What, you know, what would her voice be like? What What's her story? Where did they come from? And I started doing a little digging. And then that's when I realized the central role that they played, both in the creation of, you know, this kind of sexy sideline dancing that took over the NFL in the 70s, but also the the role they played in kind of like the pop sexualization of women during that time. And so as those pieces were coming together and I was seeing how... Um, you know, their story was just so interesting. And then when I went to go look for history, like uh, you mentioned People Magazine, I mean, like like the cheerleaders kind of fell into this weird black hole between um, like rigorous sports journalism because a lot of times, like who's going to write about the cheerleaders in, in a rigorous way? People didn't take them very seriously. And, you know, they would often farm it out to like your female um sports writer well they don't want to write about the cheerleaders because they're trying to prove themselves that they can do other things you know um and so what you would get is a lot of stories about like a lifestyle journalist coming and trying out for the cheerleaders or you know like people magazine stories but you never had anybody kind of take um like a a like do a deep dive into them and and it so and actually that actually made it really incredibly hard to do the research because you couldn't really rely on a lot of stuff i mean i think one of the best source materials for me was a book about the dallas cowboys that uh the author joe nick potoski had written he had done some great reporting on the cheerleaders in that in that book it's called the dallas cowboys um but uh you know, that's where it started. And, um, you know, and then unfortunately for, for a long time, it was very hard to get the participation of the organization. Um, I mean, and really, I never did. What I did do was win the trust of several cheerleaders over the last 50 years. And, you know, they're kind of like, there's a domino effect there, you know, because they're a very tight sisterhood. And once someone starts trusting you, then she t- you know, she tells two friends and she tells two friends. That's actually a Fabergé reference that was, um, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders did a Fabergé commercial back in the 70s um but you know it starts to fall and um so i started gaining the trust of women that could help me tell the story um but i also want to make the point that like the dallas cowboys organization didn't fully know its own history because there have been so many regime changes um there wasn't a lot of institutional memory and so a lot of this stuff was like being misrepresented or that or they didn't know it or, you know, like several, like a lot of things had been lost. That's part of why I called it like the lost history of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, because nobody had been 
nobody had been really like preserving it. One thing that um, was really, really interesting to me that you hit on was how the women were not compensated, essentially mm-hmm. really exploited in terms of financially, no share of the merchandise. I mean, some of the figures that you quoted, like in terms of what they made per game were like, I mean, obscene. Um, given the time and obviously given that there were a lot of people who wanted to be Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, where, did, did you find that they had any recourse to try to push back on this or... I don't know if it was because of the era or because of the fact that, um, you know, maybe the reality was that there would be a hundred women sort of interested in this position behind them, but the Cowboys organization just comes off awful. I mean, not only did they exploit these women in terms of what they paid or really didn't pay them, they made millions of dollars on their imaging and didn't cut the women in on the, even the larger pie. Yeah, it's really astonishing. I mean, it's important to point out that the Dallas Cowboys have a long history of being cheapskates. Like that goes back, like you can read like North Dallas 40, you know, Pete Jen's book, and he's talking about that. So they, you know, they they became the most um, lucrative, you know, team in sports, but the the old fashioned way, which was not paying anybody. <laughs> um, but when it comes to the cheerleaders, there's a there's like a extra dose of just you know it's it's really appalling so their pay starts out as as $15 a game and that's 14.12 after taxes and when you think about the way that it started which was a little haphazardly hey come on you know join this experiment that makes sense but what happens is that as it explodes through the 70s you know their their star is rising so dramatically and what's happening is that so many women are coming to the auditions. They start to get like a thousand, two thousand people. They're not incentivized to change the pay rate. Um, and so they just keep it there. And I think in the beginning, like a lot of the cheerleaders that I talked to from the seventies, like that late seventies era where they're doing a po- like they, they do a poster that um, is like the, top selling poster of the year and it sells more than a million copies right and you know it, it i think the women in that poster got like 150 dollars for like an events fee and um you know a lot of the women weren't paid anything for like a lot of this merchandising and so so anyway that your, your question was was there any way to push back i mean in the beginning i don't think they knew that they should it was almost like Oh my gosh, we're celebrities. That's like a like this the status was quite amazing for like girls from small towns in Dallas. So that felt like a reward on its own. But as the merchandising got really crazy, um there was um a collective of women that tried to push back on this. This is actually not even a story I tell in um in this larger piece. I told it in an online <laughs> like a shorter online dispatch on Texas Monthly, but there was a, a collective of women that tried to push back and they were essentially just shut down. This was like 1980, 81, 82. And, you know, they're just, the the attitude was very much, if you don't like it, there's a thousand girls standing in line behind you. And this is the kind of thing you hear, like in a lot of different, like this is very Devil Wears Prada kind of thing. You know, a thousand, like a million girls would kill to take your place. So there isn't a lot of leveraging. And that really is, you know, by the way, the $15 stays in place till the, till 1996, which is just astonishing. Um, they raise it to 50 
eventually to 200. So in 2014, there's a series of lawsuits that start to emerge across the NFL because this horrendous pay has been you know, endemic. And you start to see a contagion across the teams. And finally, one hits the Dallas Cowboys in 2018 um, from a cheerleader named Erica Wilkins. Uh, she filed that as a class action suit, but no other cheerleaders ended up um, joining her. And in fact, you know, a lot of the most high profile cheerleaders from you know, the from Dallas Cowboys history, you know, kind of circled the wagons on social media saying like, I would have done it for free. This is, you know, you it's ridiculous that she's suing. And, you know, it's there's a lot of things a lot of people would do for free. It's just that that is a different question as to whether or not the Dallas Cowboys were playing within the lines in the way that they were paying their cheerleaders. And, and, you know, basically we broke it down on, um, the podcast that I I did called America's Girls. And you look at like, you know, if they're classified as employees and, and, you know, what they are obliged to pay. Anyway, long story short, that ended in a settlement and the cheerleaders pay was doubled to $400 a game. And then they also were getting hourly rates at that time. It's still not a lot, you know, for the amount of time that goes into it. Um, But it's a, it's a vast change from that that shocking $15. You know, one of my favorite stories about the cheerleaders um, is that uh, this is like in 1977 when the cheerleader Debbie Wagner was on the cover of Esquire. This is right as they were like just hitting huge. She's on the cover of Esquire. She looks cool and hot and she's like a dead ringer for Blondie. Um, She was working at Tom Thumb, which is a grocery store and she was a checkout girl and she was like, you know, ringing up copies of Esquire and putting them in a bag, you know, like that's, that's where she was at. Like the, the, the contrast between the glamorous life they were meant to represent and the hustle that they had to do behind the scenes was quite amazing. The last sort of um, area that I want to um, get you on, and this would be you sort of offering your own thoughts, even though I realize that you're not a, uh, a hardcore NFL fan or anything like that is the Cowboys were, in terms of this kind of genre, were well ahead of their time, including mm-hmm. how they uh, marketed the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. You know, they became a brand onto themselves. Um, yeah. Ball, et cetera, you know, um, honey potted their way into like, you know, Americana. Today, everybody's got cheerleaders. Today, every team has uh, you know, maybe not even just cheerleaders, might have a dance team, you know, a professional dance team. Cheerleaders exist in colleges all over the place. Uh, dance teams exist in colleges all over the place. The um, we see um, at schools um, male cheerleaders now, in addition to women cheerleaders. Um, it, the, the, the sexualization of it still exists. Obviously, you'd have to be a moron not to notice that. But it's a different world in 2023 than it was certainly in 1977. So mm-hmm. I set up uh, um, to ask you. Um, do, uh, what are the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders today? Th- they are certainly the forerunner of all this, but do they do they remain unique as a brand? Because to me, it's interesting. I, like I'm of the age where, like, if you watch the Cowboys in like the middle '80s, like there was like excitement about the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, especially if you were like a, of course, like me. It was like, wow, this is like, you know, oh my god, these are like beautiful women and they're doing this. Like every single kid who's like a 20 year old now or 25 year old has seen cheerleaders his or her life. 
So I wonder from like what your perspective as someone who really sort of studied this archaeologically in a way, mm-hmm. like how do you see them in 20, how do you see them just as a, as a conceit in 2023? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. They used to be a transgressive, um, a, a transgressive squad, you know, and now they're a old fashioned one, you know, they're a throwback. They're almost retro. And, um, you know, it was interesting to me that uh, when I was talking to guys about, like football fans, about cheerleaders, a lot of the guys really weren't that interested. Uh, you know, it's just like we live in this in this skin-saturated age when the idea of, like, when they first debuted those, like, hot pants and go-go boots and this little crop top that ties the halter, like, it was sensational. It was really scandalous. And now, like, people are wearing that to, like, you know, high school. And so it's, it's, it's really not, um, it doesn't have anything of that, um, sizzle that it used to. And a lot of the guys, um, kind of sounded like, well, we don't even know why these exist. Like, <laughs> like why are there cheerleaders, you know? And I actually found that a lot more women had interest in the cheerleaders, um, just because, uh, if you're interested in dance, um, they're really like, like the the cheers, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders started out as a bit of a rocky, like they were a group of amateurs, um, cute amateurs, right? But they grew into quite like a powerhouse dance squad. And if you're familiar at all with their, you're probably not, but they had a reality TV show called Making the Team. It showcased a lot of the dancing. It's really quite exquisite. You know, like this is, these are kind of like the feminine arts inside the gladiator arena of men's sports. And so it can have an appeal to women. But that said, I mean, there's no, there's no question that <laughs> like they've lost, like the, the zeitgeist has long passed them by. Um, but I think they still bring a lot of comfort to people. And uh, I think Dallas, like I do think cheerleaders um, are transforming and going away um, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders started a wave of imitations that led to sort of like, I don't know, something like 20, like 29, uh, teams getting like sexy sideline cheerleaders in this, in a, a year or something like that. It was this crazy wave that happened in 1978, but the wave's moving the other direction now. And, you know, people are getting more modest costumes. They're starting to do more stunting. They're not as interested in, this thing which which really represented a certain in some ways like peak era of voyeuristic television and um but i but i think the dallas cowboys cheerleaders will be the last one standing and they'll you know they'll be a a you know a throwback to this strange you know this time in american culture um and I, I think people love them for that and will hate them for that. Uh, but, you know, everybody knows who they are. Sarah Heppolo wrote a absolutely fascinating piece on the, the history of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. The piece was from Texas Monthly. The headline Texas Monthly was a half century of high kicks and hot pads. You can find that in the 2023, the year's best sports writing actually the second story actually uh in the book and then obviously uh go search out sarah's work uh at texas monthly if you google her um you'll see everything she's published she's uh 
just an absolutely fabulous writer and uh, and highly recommended. Sarah, I, I know you probably don't do a lot of sports media podcasts with my guests. So thank you so much for uh, coming on today. And uh, again, it's just... Uh, it was uh, it was such a cool thing to be able to include your story in this uh, anthology. So uh, so like many, I, I thank you for writing. You have really increased my sports cred around Dallas, and I thank you for that. <laughs> be careful what you wish for, Sarah. Cool. <laughs> All right, back in the studio. My thanks to both Ryan and Sarah for coming on and uh, talking about their just fantastic stories. I appreciate it. Um, again, if you like these podcasts. Uh, check out the archives there should be something for you leave us a five-star review and a nice note that's how this podcast continues want to thank patrick antonetti for all his uh hard work as we're doing some uh, extra podcasts this week want to thank everybody at odyssey for their support and thank you very much for listening we'll see you soon on the sports media podcast